So as I stated, we're going to do the second half of Romans chapter 5 first. And I want to explain why. It's the only chapter I'm going to do this with. But what we are about to study in the second half of Romans 5, it really could go anywhere in the last half of chapter 4. It could come before the first half of chapter 5. It's really sort of this, this comma in the thought process. And there's this comparison between Jesus and Adam. And honestly, it's one of the most confusing sections of Romans. Romans. It's, it, it is so wordy, it's just kind of strange the way that it's set. And as we're going to study this morning, it's not complicated to understand. It's just wordy. And the first section of Romans chapter 5 is one of the most important sections of the entire book. Uh, it, it is where we reach the answer. Finally, we've spent the last couple of weeks in Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4 looking at the truth. We're all sinners. We all need a Savior. We're all in trouble before God. So what's the answer? We were introduced to the answer last week. The answer is faith, is faith, but in Romans chapter 5, we understand what our faith is in. What does it mean to have faith in Jesus? What does that even mean? Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, explain it. It's one of the most important truths that a Christian needs to understand is the why. Why are we right with God? Why can God look at you and declare you righteous? It's one thing to know that He can. It's another thing to know that He does. But it's an entirely different thing when you understand why. And it's important that you do understand why. That's the, the, because this is like such a turning point in the book of Romans, I want to close with that. I don't want to do that first and then close with the confusing part about uh, one man versus one man. And so we're going to start on this back half of Romans, and then come back to Romans 1. So let's get started. I'm actually going to read verses 12 through 17 here first to get started. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Let's pause. Maybe that's not confusing to, me, to you, but it is to me a little bit when I read it. Just read it straight through. It's just kind of wordy. And so here's what's being said there. 
there's this comparison that's being made between Adam and Jesus. It says that Adam was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. How so? In what way was Adam a type or something that kind of pointed forward to Christ? Well, he was the first man. There was none other before him. Uh, He was initially created perfect and sinless. And as you know, as we've read, he ended up sinning and, and that changed everything. His life, here's another way that he is a type. His life impacted the entire world. And so his actions impacted everybody else. And the point that's being made here is that through one man, sin came into the whole world. And through Jesus, one man, righteousness is offered to everybody in the whole world. And the ultimate point that is being made here is that while it is true that through one man, sin came into the world, and that sin continued to increase, that the grace that comes through Christ is even superior. That the grace that comes through Jesus, it outweighs the sin that came through Adam. And that's sort of the conclusion in the last few verses here, starting verse 18. So therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, that's speaking of Jesus' act on the cross, it leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the conclusion here is, is that Adam and Jesus are basically polar opposites. One man's actions led to condemnation for all. Another man's actions leads to righteousness for all who will believe by faith. One man's, uh, one man's sin increased. And it uses the, the, the statement here, the law came to increase the trespass. Talking about the law of Moses. Doesn't mean that the law made people more sinners than they were, but without the law, we weren't really conscious of how great of sinners we were. Paul testifies to it later when he says, if it wasn't for the law, I really wouldn't have even known what huge of a sinner I was. And so, once the law came forth, it was like, oh, that's a sin, that's a sin, that's a sin, and all of a sudden, sin increased. But, what we see is, is that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And here's what that means, is that, The grace of God, through Jesus Christ, it is sufficient to cover our sins, no matter how abounding they may or may not be. And when you look at, for example, even the author of the book of Romans, this is a guy who used to be a horrible person. This is a guy who stood by and let innocent Christians be martyred. 
and gave approval to their death. There's no record that Paul, with his own hands, murdered a man, but he sat there and gave approval to a man being murdered. And so he might as well just be as guilty as everybody else there. And yet, this is somebody who, by the grace of God, was radically changed and learned what he's trying to teach us here, that we are not saved by works, we are saved by grace, and no matter how far a person has been into sin, no matter how far away from God a person may be, the grace of God is greater than our sins. That's the conclusion here of Romans 5. Now, what I want to do is go back to Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. And I want to set the stage for what we're about to read. By far, one of the most important passages in the book of Romans, and arguably, because of that, one of the most important passages in the entire Bible. It's going to explain to us why we are saved. Important to understand that. And so, before I just start reading it, I'm going to give you a 60-second recap of the last two weeks. Chapter 1. Even people who aren't God-fearing people are still without excuse because nature itself testifies to a divine creator and even the people of the world reject their very consciences and they are without excuse. Chapter 2, hold on a second, you religious people. You who actually know (laughs) what God has said. You who tell everybody else what God has said. You still don't do it. And so in some ways, your condemnation is even worse. Because you do know what is right. You do know what God has said. And you still don't do it. So the great conclusion of Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here's what that means in common English. You're in trouble. I'm in trouble. We're in trouble. It's too late. There's no reversing it. There's no, there's no time machine to go back and not sin, it's done. We're all guilty before God. And so far, what we see through two and a half chapters of Romans is that there's a great big problem for us. We need a solution to our sins, what we have done. We are all guilty before God. And then in Romans chapter 4, we start to get introduced to this truth that we are saved by grace, that we are saved By grace through faith. That there's nothing you can do to work or earn your salvation. And that we need grace. Grace means undeserved favor. It means you didn't earn it. God didn't look at you and say, wow, finally, you are such a good person. You can be saved. What we learn is that we're all in big trouble. And we need a Savior. And so we're kind of introduced to this theme in chapter 4. And and what, what... Chapter 4 says, hey, hold on a second. We were never saved by works. Take a minute to look back in time and look back at the Old Testament and look back at Abraham and realize Abraham was credited righteousness. That means right standing with God because he believed God. and God counted it to him as righteousness. And so in Romans 4, here's what we learn. That from the beginning of time, we've all been saved the same way. The New Testament Christian is not saved any different than the Old Testament Christian. We are all saved by grace through faith. The difference is 
the Old Testament Christian did not have the knowledge we have about Jesus Christ. The Old Testament Christian had limited understanding of atonement, limited understanding of God's great big plan. But the Old Testament Christian, so long as he believed God with a sincere belief that was brought, you know, that was demonstrated, there was this true, sincere belief, God counted that as righteousness. And so the point being, that's how they were saved then, and that's how we're saved now. So we're saved by faith. But that still has this hanging question. What does that mean? What, what do we say? Like, so we're saved by faith. Faith in what? Faith in Jesus? What does that mean? Just faith in His name? Faith that He's a person? Faith that He's the Son of God? Like, what do we have faith in? And understanding the what and why we have faith, I cannot overexpress the importance of it. And what we are about to read is the explanation. The whole book so far gets to this great big point. Here's why, why we know that we're saved. Verse 1 of chapter 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Pause. We have been justified. That's an important word. We are justified. God is just in forgiving us. And that's an important term. God did not look at you and your life of anarchy against Him and just say, eh, no big deal. Let's sweep that under the carpet, honey. I love you. That would not be just. I read one of the most Stupid articles I've read in ages. And I read some stupid articles. <laughs> Yesterday, I read it. In California, this week on Tuesday, there was a judge who sentenced a woman to no prison time, no jail time, only probation and 100 hours of community service for murdering her boyfriend by stabbing him 108 times. Because... She was high when she did it. I'm not kidding you. This is real, people. She claimed that she went crazy from the weed. And so, I don't know. I mean, I'm telling you, I'm mind-boggled to me. You don't get that excuse if you get drunk. Go off and kill somebody. But somehow, in California, if your plea is, the weed made me do it, you can stab someone 108 times and kill them and get 100 hours of community service. And here's what I'll say. That is an evil, wicked judge. There's none of us who would say that is just. Yet God, when He looks at your wickedness and your sin, can truly say that you are justified. How can that be? It's important to understand how. You see, there had to be a payment. Something had to be done to make right what you have done wrong. And the answer to that is Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that as we walk through here. God did not just take all of your wickedness and say, well, no big deal. No, there was the most awful and horrific cost as a result of your sin, 
your anarchy against God, there was a cost that was paid. And that cost was the blood of Jesus Christ. And so God, when He looks at you and He looks at, us, and looks at me, and he, he says, you are justified. It is not that He is not just. It is not that He is pretending we haven't done anything. But there is something that happened. And that something that happened was Jesus on the cross. You have got to understand that it is the blood of Jesus that brings us into peace with God. It's such an incredible thought to think that we have peace with God. Now, I want to take some time to divert from the text, and I just want to talk about the blood of Jesus. It's important that you understand why the blood of Jesus makes us right with God. If you do not understand what I'm telling you right now, you will not experience peace with God. It is the blood of Jesus and only the blood of Jesus that brings us into right standing with God. So, in the Old Testament, there used to be a tabernacle. And the tabernacle, according to Hebrews chapter 10, was a shadow of what was to come. It wasn't the real thing. You know what a shadow is? Like, I can actually see my shadow here on the floor. If you were sitting on the front row, you can see my shadow. Obviously, my shadow is not me. I am the substance. According to Hebrews 10, all of the Old Testament sacrifices and all of the Old Testament ways in the tabernacle were a shadow of the substance. And the substance was Jesus Christ. But let's consider something about the shadows. There are three sections in the tabernacle. Very important that you understand what I'm about to say. So follow me, and this is kind of deep. There are three sections in the tabernacle. The first is the open court. And you cannot see the open court without coming into the tabernacle. The tabernacle was surrounded by walls, I think about eight foot tall. And so, you would have to come in through the, through the main doors into the tabernacle. As soon as you walk into the tabernacle, you would bring your sacrifice with you. There would be the brazen altar. In some cases, you would slay your own sacrifice, and then the priest would take it from there. In some scenarios, the priest would actually slay the sacrifice. But once you entered into the public area of the tabernacle, all that you would do as a sinner was present your sacrifice. From there, the priests did everything else. They took the work. As you entered the tabernacle further, there was an area called the holy place. Only the priests, plural, only the priests could go into the holy place. And there was certain work that was done there every day. And then, at the back of the tabernacle, was what was called the Holy of Holies. Now, in the Holy of Holies, this is where, for that period of time, God chose to let His manifest presence dwell on earth. Inside the Holy of Holies. When you study the Old Testament, you'll note that the presence of God went wherever the Ark of the Covenant went. So it was this box that basically held the Ten Commandments in it. Had a handful of other things in it as well. 
and that, that box, wherever that went, it was as if the presence of God would go with it. If you remember the story, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the Philistines stole it at one point in time, and everywhere it went, it just made everybody sick. And finally they were like, we don't want this thing. They brought it back to the Jews. And it was eventually put back in its rightful place. So the Ark of the, Pre- the Covenant, inside of the Holy of Holies, is where God dwelt for a period of time. Notice that inside the Ark of the the Holy of Holies, people couldn't go. You couldn't go. I couldn't go. The priests couldn't go. The only time a human could go into the Holy of Holies was once a year. And that when they went, when that person that went had to be the high priest one time a year, and he would take on the Day of Atonement the blood of a bull that was a symbol of sacrifice. It was a symbol of Jesus. And the the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. He would sprinkle the blood of the bull over the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, and then he would leave. This happened once a year, and that was the only time any human could ever go in where God was. It taught us that there was no way to approach God except for with the blood. And it taught us that we generally couldn't approach God. Only the high priest could. Now, here's what I want you to see. We're talking about the blood. It's important that you understand what I'm teaching this morning because we're getting ready to learn about the blood. Who was the blood for? It was not for us. It was on behalf of us. But it wasn't for us. They didn't, shed, they didn't shed the blood of the bull and then bring the basin to us to satisfy our wrath. The blood, who was it presented to? It was presented to God. And so the blood, primarily, is to satisfy God. Now here's a statement that I'm going to make that you have to meditate on this week. If the blood satisfies God, it must satisfy you and brothers and sisters most of the time as Christians the blood does not satisfy us we think we've got to add to it we feel like I've had a bad week I haven't really been the Christian I should I had you know I blew got angry and said some things I shouldn't have said I've been lazy in my study I've been lazy in my prayer and here here's what we start to think I just don't feel right with God you're minimizing the blood. You were never right with God because of anything that you did. It has always been the blood and it has only been the blood. Interestingly enough, it's also wrong when we think to ourselves the opposite. Well, I've had a great week. I'm feeling very spiritual. I've got my Bible study in. I've spent my time in prayer. I've been a really good Christian this week. Therefore, I feel like I'm right with God. That is minimizing the blood. You have never been right with God for any reason other than the blood. It is the blood and the blood only that satisfies God. And you cannot take away from it and you cannot add to it. This is one of the most important things that you'll learn as a young Christian. Because if you don't, here's what you'll think. You'll think 
that your failures and your inability to be a perfect, sinless Christian, that somehow that means that you're not right with God. And here's the worst part about that. From two perspectives, you got God up here and you got you here. If you're down here and you, and you don't understand what I'm telling you, you're walking around, you got no peace in your heart, and you don't feel like you got peace with God. But it doesn't change anything with God. God's looking down from heaven and saying, there's nothing between us. I've got peace with you. You've got peace with me because of the blood. But if you don't know that, you will live your life as a Christian without experiencing peace, always feeling like somehow you're not right with God. It is through the blood and through the blood alone that we can approach God. When you really understand this, it'll be an absolute game changer in your life. There's not a single work you can do to add to it. There's not an action you can do that somehow will bring you into more right standing with God. It is the blood and it is the blood of Jesus only and it is through that that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's move on. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we have peace with God. Now we have access to God through grace. You know what access means? Remember I I had stated that before in the Holy of Holies where God was, that only the high priest could go? In order to get into the Holy of Holies, there was this massive veil that you had to go through. And it was huge, and it didn't let any light in. The Bible tells us that when Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished, that that same veil was torn from the top to the bottom. God supernaturally split that veil, tore it apart, demonstrating to you and I that now the pathway is open to Him, and by grace, I can go into the Holy of Holies. You can go into the Holy of Holies because the blood of Jesus has been presented to God. It it has cleansed us and we now have right standing with God. We no longer need a high priest to go in once a year and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, but we can go boldly before the throne of grace and find help in our time of need because the veil has been torn because the blood has been shed. I have to understand this as a Christian. Because if I don't, I'm constantly going to live with a sense of shame and guilt that I am not perfect and I am not flawless. There is such a relief that comes when I, when I fall on my face, there's such a relief that comes from knowing the blood of Jesus cleanses me of all my sins. I confess that Christianity it is a small few that ever get what I'm really teaching right now. There are those that trample the blood of Jesus and use this as an excuse to sin. Shame on them. But there is a small few in the kingdom of God who absolutely hunger and thirst for righteousness. There is a small few of us who long with all of our hearts to get it right and to be holy and to be righteous in our living and to be right in our thinking, and to always treat people right, and to always be forgiving, and to always be merciful, 
and to be like Jesus. There was a small group who truly hunger for that. And those of us find that no matter that, that are part of that group, that no matter how hard we want it, and no matter how hard we pursue it, we still fall short. And we learn that the only reason we've ever been able to approach God is because of the blood. And so when the Bible says that we have faith in Jesus, this is one of the areas when it talks about what does it mean to have faith in Jesus, this is one of the things that it means. You have faith in the blood of Jesus that the blood that He shed is what justifies you in the sight of God. When I say I have faith in Christ, that's one of the things that I'm talking about. His blood satisfied the wrath of God, and so now I have right standing with God because of nothing that I've done, but because of the blood of Jesus. And so I throw myself by faith. I throw my life. I throw my soul. I throw my eternity on Jesus. And I just have to trust that His blood has justified me. And that I am right in the sight of God because of the blood of Jesus. Let's read on. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Let's stop there. We rejoice in our sufferings. This is called the Intro to Christianity series. You need to understand something, young Christian. Nowhere has the Bible ever taught that God's people don't suffer. Nowhere. In fact, it teaches the opposite. We will suffer. And here's what's wild. It says we rejoice in our sufferings. And so you need to know right out the gate that this amazing thing that happens when we put faith in Christ and, we, and God, God treats us and, and sees us as righteous because of the blood of Jesus, and our sins are forgiven, that does not equal you'll never suffer here on earth. But it says that we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Well, one of the reasons is suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. You want to be a man of character? You want to be a woman of character? You want to be a man of integrity? A woman of integrity? You have to learn how to endure. And there's nothing that produces endurance better than suffering. And it's when we suffer in an evil and broken world, it's when we suffer because we're part of a world that is filled with death and chaos, we are reminded this is not our home. We are reminded that God has pulled us out of that wicked world system and He has caused us to be born again and He has changed us and we are His and He is ours and this place is not our home and that's what the hope that doesn't disappoint is all about. We're not going to be here long, folks. We're just pilgrims passing through and so even the suffering of the Christian, it produces character when it's all said and done because we are reminded this suffering world is not my home and it is not my eternal lot. I am headed somewhere else where there will be no suffering, there will be no sorrow, there will be no pain, there will be no death. And so even suffering is used to strengthen the child of God. You need to know that. Christianity 101. 
Suffering, when it's done and seen through the right perspective, it actually produces endurance and character and hope. In chapter 5, or verse 5, excuse me, we're also introduced to a new concept here. That God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now we're introduced to something else that's awesome, the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 8, there's a lot more about the Holy Spirit. So I'm not going to talk much about it this morning, but it is introduced here. And so not only are your sins forgiven through the blood, thank God for that, not only can I have right standing with God for something I had nothing to do with, but on top of that, God has given me the Holy Spirit. And His love is poured out in my heart through the Holy Spirit. This is one of the amazing truths about true salvation is that God changes us with His Holy Spirit. It's very difficult for someone to understand that doesn't have a love for God, doesn't have a love for the things of God. They think to themselves, well, you know, I do want to go to heaven, but there's no way I could be a Christian. I don't want to serve the Lord. I don't like the Bible. I don't like church. I don't like church people. I don't like anything spiritual. You have no idea what you'll be like once the Holy Spirit changes your heart and takes up residence in your life. You're, you're trying to figure out what Christianity would look like in your same old nature. But what happens is, is God gives us the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit transforms us, changes us, and pours out the love of God in our hearts. Let's read on. Verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God showed His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pause there. While we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The writer says, you know... It's pretty rare someone would die for anyone else, even if the person they were dying for was a good man. Scarcely does that ever happen. But for us, we weren't good men. While we were still enemies of God, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's an awesome thought. While you were still in your anarchy against God, while you were still living to your own, you know, according to the dictates of your own sinful heart, while you were still in rebellion against God's law, Jesus looked at you and loved you and said, I'm going to die for you. The follow-up conclusion is that, and, and we're going to read it here, but, but the follow-up conclusion is, if He loved you when you were a sinner, how much more should we have peace that now that He has transformed our hearts through faith and given us the Holy Spirit, how much more should we have peace about this right standing we have with God and that God is going to finish in us what He started? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9, Since therefore... We have been justified by His blood. Much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. 
So there's the argument, right? If He loved us while we were sinners, how much more can we trust that He's going to save us from the wrath to come now that we've been justified by, the, by His blood? I want you to note that in verse 9 it says, we have been justified by His blood. And then I want you to look at verse 1. It says, we've been justified by faith. So on one hand, it says we've been justified by faith. On the other hand, it says we've been justified by His blood. There's no conflict here. Our faith is in the blood of Jesus. So this is what it means. When someone says, I have faith in Jesus, well, that's what it means. I have faith that His blood paid for my sins. And therefore, when I stand before God, I have right standing with God because I have faith, I believe, that the blood of Jesus atones for all of my sins. We are justified in the sight of God. Verse 10, For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Four times here, the word reconciled is introduced. This is a really, really important word to understand. It has great importance here, and it's used again in Romans chapter 6 in a very important way. Reconciled. What does that mean? It's actually a word that we don't use much anymore. Not correctly. There are very few people here that when I say the word reconcile, really understand what the word means, unless you're an accountant. To reconcile something, in order for it to be reconciled, everything has to equal. For example, if let's say you owed me a thousand dollars, and in order for us to be reconciled, you would have to pay me the thousand dollars. You might pay one day two hundred and twelve dollars and eight cents, and then the next day two dollars and ten cents, and then a month later one hundred and fifty bucks even, and then a month after that, you know, thirty-eight dollars and nineteen cents. The only way that we'll ever be reconciled is when you take all those numbers and it equals exactly to the penny what you owe. It's a word we're not real familiar with in this day and time because we don't actually reconcile anything anymore. Uh, even with our banks, most people just open up their, you know, their phone and they got a, it shows what's in the account today and they kind of have an idea what's coming through and they don't know. But in the old days, you actually used to have to write down every purchase and you would have to see what has come through you would have to see what hasn't come through, do the math, and see if it equaled. And here's the important thing to understand about reconciling. It doesn't matter if it's one penny off or $10,000 off. It doesn't matter. It's not reconciled. For, you have to understand, and this is so important. May the Holy Spirit help you see this. You have to understand the force of the word. Close enough does not count with reconciled. It's either reconciled or it's not. It's either right or it's wrong. That's all there is to it. It does not matter if you're within three cents. You are wrong. Something's off. In order for it to be reconciled. This is a term we don't hardly understand. 
True story. I used to reconcile my checkbook, old school. I'd write every single thing in, what's called a check register. You write down the, the expense and how much it is, and you do the math and keep it up, and you reconcile it. A few years ago, I went to the bank because I ran out of check registers. I go to the bank. I'm at the drive through window. This young lady, probably early 20s, says, how can I help you, sir? I said, I would like a check register, please. She looked at me like a deer in the headlights. I promise you. She says, excuse me, sir? I said, I would like a check register, please. She said, I don't think we have those here. <laughs> no kidding. And it's because we don't do that anymore. We don't. Nobody does that anymore. It's just a thing in the past. But I want you to understand something with what I'm teaching you this morning about the blood of Jesus and what we're going to see next week when we start chapter 6. You have to understand the word reconcile. It's either reconciled or it's not. It's either paid in full, perfectly, 100% to the penny, or it's not. It's either right or it's wrong, period. That's what reconciled means. I want to read this again, and I want you to keep that in mind. It's powerful. For if, while we were in it, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The Bible is teaching this. Do the math. What you owed to be right with God has been paid in full. Do the math. It's not a penny short. It is 100% total and complete. It is right as right can ever be. It is perfect and it is done. God's plan is without error. You are right with God. You are reconciled with God because of the death and blood of Jesus Christ. Has nothing to do with your works. Has nothing to do with you. Has nothing to do with you add to it. You weren't three cents short. And by your good works, you finally added three cents to the scale. And now you're reconciled to God. We are reconciled to God perfectly and completely only because of the death and blood of Jesus Christ. You have to know the why. That's why you have right standing with God. That's what we mean when we say, I have Faith in Jesus. It's not just some tag phrase. It's not just some statement without any substance to it. That's what our faith is in. It's in what He did. It's in Christ. It's in His work at the cross. It's in His blood that satisfied the wrath of God. And now God looks at me and He says, everything's been paid. This, this, this. All your sins, everything, you add it up. And yep, the blood of Jesus equals all of that and more. We are reconciled. You owe me nothing. It's an overwhelming thing when you get a hold of it as a Christian. It really doesn't even feel fair. It feels like I, I should have to add something. And we find that the only thing that God really wants in return is love. He 
He wants us now to follow Him out of sincere love. Not to add to the scale because the scale doesn't need added to. Not to add to the blood because the blood doesn't need added to. Not to add to the death of Jesus because the death of Jesus doesn't need to be added to. He just wants me to love Him because He first loved me and while we were enemies, He loved us and He came to us and He redeemed us and He reconciled us. The least that we could do is love Him for it and live for Him out of a real heart of gratitude. And that's the response that God wants from His sons and daughters. Chapter 6. I want you to study 6 and 7. And that's the next couple of weeks as we continue our study, we're going to be studying the topic of something. You know, there's this grand thing that happens in the life of the Christian when you finally understand why you're right with God. I mean, I can't explain the peace that really comes if, you're, if the Holy Spirit will help you get a hold of what I just said. There is such a peace that comes in knowing that the blood of Jesus is all that I need to keep me right with God. It's awesome. So we're leaving. God has a solution to all the sins in my life. And it's the blood of Jesus. But then as a Christian, we advance. That's what Romans does. It's advancing. The true Christian eventually finds a very horrible truth. And that is that the reason I sin... It's because of the sin nature in me. The Bible calls him the old man. We're going to see that term introduced when we start chapter 6. It's actually a horrifying discovery. When all of a sudden I realize as a Christian, there's still a part of me that's very selfish. There's still a part of me that lusts. There's still a part of me that desires evil. There's still a part of me that does not hunger and thirst for the things of God. And for the Christian, when you first discover that, it can be very confusing. You'll even think to yourself, well, maybe I'm not saved. Maybe I wasn't sincere when I knelt and I asked God to change me. Maybe there's something wrong with me and I don't really love God. Because if I did, why? would there still be this part of me that hungers for what is wrong? Chapter 6 and chapter 7, that's what the whole thing is about. The reality that for the Christian, there's a battle between the old and the new. That while God gave us a new nature, He did not destroy the old nature. So what does that look like? How do we live that out? And what we're going to find is that just like God had this magnificent answer to our sins and reconciling us through the blood, God also has a magnificent way of handling the old nature. And we're going to spend a couple weeks on it. It's a big topic. It's one of the most important things as a young Christian to, to really keep you from living in condemnation is understanding how God sees your old man what God says about the old nature, and how God says to handle the old nature. So I want to encourage you to, to read ahead. Chris, you guys can go ahead and come. I closed this out in prayer at the first service, but we'll, we'll close this service with a, a song of invitation. I want to encourage you over the next couple of weeks to read chapter 6 and read chapter 7. Pray that God will begin to prepare your heart for this truth about the battle for the true Christian.
between the old and the new. This morning, if you happen to be here, and you're hearing me preach on being right with God, and you're hearing me explain how God uses the blood of Jesus to atone, to pay for your sins. And you're here and you're like, man, the Holy Spirit is dealing with my heart. And I've never seen it that way. And this morning, I want to, I want to put my faith in Jesus. I, 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 trust, I trust the Lord for it. If that's you, we're going to sing a song here or two. We're going to close with worship. You're going to see people sitting and praying. You're going to see a few maybe stand and worship. We've got space up here at the front of the church for people who want to pray. If you're here this morning, you need to get right with God. And you need to put your faith in Jesus. I encourage you during this time of worship and invitation to get out of your seat. Work your way down this aisle, this aisle, this aisle. Find a place to kneel up here. And you come and you talk to God about it. You tell God, God, I know I need to be right with you. You tell God, God, I know, I know it. You know it. I am a sinner. And I need forgiveness. And you ask God to forgive you. You ask God to give you His Holy Spirit and pour His love out in your heart. And you be honest with God and make a sincere decision. He says, God, from this day forward, I'm putting my faith in Jesus. I'm going to follow you. And I promise you, you come with a sincere heart. You get those words out of your mouth, however they come out. God will meet you right where you're at on your knees. He'll change your life.